to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and with me today is Amy O'Neill. Amy is a survivor of mass violence, she's a therapist, she's an educator, and she's a fellow podcaster. Um, So she's got a lot more experience at this than than I do, so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping she can uh, walk me through the the tough parts of this particular experience. But Amy, um, tell me a little bit about what happened when you ran your first Boston Marathon. Well, first of all, thank you for having this conversation because personally, I have a passion that the world at large better understand the survivor experience. I think it's the only way that we're going to help people. So thank you. It's part of what this podcast is designed to do. So great. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, So my experience at my first Boston Marathon as a lifelong athlete, triathlete, I actually did my first marathon in an Ironman. I had never run a full marathon until that first Ironman. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I managed to do it in four hours. So I thought, I can qualify for Boston if I don't ride my bike for 112 miles first. Or swim for or swim many miles 2.4. Oh my gosh. So um, I trained and I did that. I qualified for the Boston Marathon. So to me, it's a sacred space. Um, I ironically suffered a back injury. I kind of got to the 2013 race by accident. I took the heat deferment from 2012 to rehab my back. And then there I was. So. Okay. I, um, so you weren't even supposed to be in the 2013 race. Right. You were targeting 2012. I was targeting 2012, and then even as a qualified runner, because I went to the 2013 race, they put me in the back. Oh. So that's how I wasn't with my age group corral either. Oh, okay. So there was a lot of interesting things that led up to sort of where I was that okay. day. But um, I basically, I was running the race just to finish, and um, I was right in front of the forum at the time of the second explosion. When I heard the first explosion, and I share about this often, you really immediately knew something was wrong. There was a power of that explosion, even as far back as I was, that you could feel it. I mean, even the pressure in your head, you knew that's not a normal sound. Yeah, it wasn't like someone setting off a fire. No, no, and the only thing I could think at the time was did the sound system blow up because it was so concerning, mm-hmm. actually. So as I was trying to figure out that was, there was 11 seconds between explosions. The second one was just massive directly to my left side. So I was probably in the middle of the street. Okay. So, um, you know, immediately you can't hear temporarily, which is a strange. I'm very disconcerting, I imagine. Disconcerting and the- And you're exhausted out the yin yang, I assume. I mean, I don't know <laughs> yes. how, because that's it was near the finish line. It was near the finish line, and I was still recovering from injury. So the, the day before, I had, my two girlfriends were with me, and we had actually had a martini lunch. I saw them at mile 17, and I said the martini was a really bad idea. Okay. And um, by the time I got to mile 26, I passed the 26-mile sign. That's the last thing I remember okay. before okay. the explosion happened. All right. Um, and, and so when the bomb went off, I, I, I know from reading about your story a little bit, um, your reaction wasn't to sort of, hey, I'm going to power through to the finish line. It was, oh, my goodness. And, and what did you do? Actually, um, it was so strange because I'm such an active, I mean, I've worked in tough situations. I 
broken up fights. I worked in the detention center. I mean, I feel it, and I just really froze there. And part of the freezing was, you know, I remember thinking that the first explosion happened, the second one was next to me, and I, I looked down the street behind me. I always get a little, and I remember thinking there's going to be another one, and if I'm going to die. And I had two young boys, so that was very, you know. Sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So scanning the street to the left where the building, you know, I could see that the windows had been blown out and the barricade was down. I could see some chaos on the sidewalk. And to my right, because I was between the two buildings, people were fleeing up over the barricade. And eventually I went over the barricade as well. So you basically got off the course and, and got off the course tried to avoid a possible third explosion and I mean and I ran for my life I was gonna say literally I don't mean to be melodramatic but you kind of ran for your life and you know that statement carries mm-hmm. so much more um, value and weight with me today than it used to because there was a lot of shame mm-hmm. about leaving oh, so really? oh gosh yeah so when I run for my life to be a mom to my children mm-hmm. that helps me Right. Feel you, like you, you had a life to run too. Yeah, yeah. yeah and responsibilities yeah. And, and yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I, I, you've sort of answered my next question, which was kind of what was going through your head while you were climbing and, and escaping, basically. So, part of what happened to me, and you know, I don't need to be graphic, but the the explosion from the sidewalk had sprayed blood and debris on me, and some of it was not mine. So. Part of what I was doing was trying to figure out what happened, you know, what it right. was and what happened, and just trying to get an understanding of. Uh, mm-hmm. Your brain wants to know what's going on, and it didn't make sense. And mm-hmm. I kept feeling like we were under attack. That was sort of where I landed in my head. Um, and as you know, I didn't know where I, I was lost. I got, and the further you got away from that finish line. Boylston Street, people didn't know two or three blocks off Is that yet. Right? So, I mean, you know, I'm bloody and <laughs> running around like a crazy person. I'm sure asking people on the street were like, how to get to Stewart Street here? or where's the W Hotel. And, you know, it took a while. Okay. So. But you did make it back to your hotel. And then, then what happened? I made it back to my hotel and the doorman took one look at me and said, what can I do? I said, you can get my car with an explicative word. (laughs) (laughs) Our bags were already packed. We knew that we were planning on leaving. We all had small children. We were going to leave right after the race. And uh, we were probably one of the last cars to get on Mass Pike. And the phone was ringing. Our other friends were locked down in their hotels and Okay. Um, so you, uh, I mean, that was that was a, one of the community responses in Boston was basically to lock down hotels, to close highways because they wanted to make sure that possibly the perpetrators didn't escape. Yeah. So things just started to shut down. I think it was part. Of, what I've come to learn is it's part of the disaster plan. There was an open route from the finish line to the hospitals, so that worked beautifully, apparently. But um, yeah, they just started to shut down the And, and the so city. You, you made it out right before they, and you drove at that point all the way back to Pennsylvania. Yes, so I ran up, um, I jumped in the shower, everything I had on went in a bag and I took it, my friend drove my car, it was my car, but she drove my car. We got lost, we went, you know, we were disoriented and 
Luckily, my two girlfriends were at the hotel. They weren't on the course. They got stuck in the, um, I forget the name of their subway, but it, the power had the gone out, the tea, so mm -hmm. it took them a while to get back, so they figured they were best just to meet at the hotel, okay. which was fortunate. So, um, yeah, my friend drove, and we got went the wrong way on 95. We ended up in Rhode Island. <laughs> um, I was bleeding, you know, the whole time, small trickle. And, um, you, had, you had bomb fragments in your leg in my at leg. that point. Yeah, so stopped at a gas station and bought some Neosporin and whatever we could find there. I think it was Neosporin was yeah, what we... Like, you know, yeah, I just like, you know, put some pressure on it. Mm -hmm. It's, just, yeah, it's exactly. just a bomb injury. It's, you know, right, okay. it's right, put a little pressure on it. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, just surreal. That time it period, I don't yeah. remember. I know I didn't answer any phone calls. Like okay. there was a shutdown, I didn't answer any. I think I texted my family back, I'm fine. But that was it. Okay. I didn't. I didn't. I had the messages on my phone probably till last year. Really? I deleted them last year. Okay. I felt like it was time. You just you just saved them because they were like a memento. Kind it was of a thing? just a. I I don't I don't know why, but. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're here with Amy O'Neill today. She's a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing and and many other things. Um, but uh, you're listening to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. And Amy, um, what started your journey towards resilience? So I ended up um, getting involved in the Victims Advisory Board for the Massachusetts Resiliency Center. And one of the things that I became really curious of was how people were healing from around the world, really. I think there were 90 countries maybe involved in the Boston um, tragedy. And I was in therapy at the time and I would go back to my psychologist and say, you know, I'm doing really well at this and I'm not doing well at this. Like, what do you think is happening here? So I think because of my mental health background, we could have this really interesting experience. Um, one of the things she said to me that stuck out, she said, you're an endurance athlete you're used to being uncomfortable and you can push through no matter what, which is what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was head down pushing through, which actually isn't good and it, it wasn't good for me. But, um, but I also knew that I had the capacity to do that. So what I ended up um, taking out of my sessions with her was this, I wanted to have the, the two things present at the same time. I wanted to be able to push through, be a good mom and wife and live my life, but I also wanted to go through what I was going through mm -hmm. instead of avoid it or... And those are kind of not necessarily compatible experiences in life. One right. is sort of very stable. Right. I mean, not that being a parent to small children is like a walk in the park or anything, but it's, it's a, there's routine there, somewhat predictable versus making sense out of being uh, exposed to a bombing, uh, right. a terrorist event, is not uh, something that sort of comes with an instruction manual right. or, or there aren't models for you to observe. And uh, how, that balance sounds like it must have been very difficult to achieve. It's, um, it's a, I, I feel like when you come into, it's like a partnership. Okay, this happened and I'm figuring it out 
and I'm, you know, I'll do it when I'm with her and I could do it when I was with the connections that I made with the survivor group. So through the Resiliency Center, connection became a big part of resilience. And I spent a lot of time in the shadows of the survivor community. Um, there's a lot of um, hierarchy in these communities, depending on okay. degree of injury and all, all kinds of stuff. And um, But through the Resiliency Center and the trial experience, I got to meet a lot of other survivors. And having these conversations and those connections was really life-changing in the journey. So I started thinking about you know resilience in terms of the way that we connect with people. And one of the experiences that happened to me was at the one-year anniversary, I met Heather Abbott's father. I was sitting next to him, and I had gone there alone. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting next to him during the commemoration ceremony, and she became an amputee. She mm. was at the forum. And um, he asked me, I had a lot of guilt about being a runner, mm -hmm. and all these people are here on their day off having right. an incredible experience. And um, I'll probably get emotional again, <laughs> but he um, asked me if I was going to run in 2014, which was a week after this commemoration ceremony, and I told him I was. And he was like, I'm going to track you. and. Oh, how and cool. yeah, like I, I, I hope you have a great day and I'm going to, I'll be rooting for you. And that meant so much to me that he was, thing. yeah, that his daughter lost her leg and he was going to root for me mm -hmm. was a really, I mean, that interaction was life changing. I'm sure. That sounds really meaningful. Mm -hmm. But uh, you mentioned that you were running again in 2014. Tell me a little bit about the decision process that led you to decide to run the very next year uh, in the marathon again? I, I had a, a need to be going back and forth to Boston. I'm sure, you know, in, in the trauma expert world, it has to do with mastery or some kind of... Um, just re-experiencing differently, mm -hmm. but uh, I never questioned running in 2014. I really? wanted to finish the race, and I wanted to do my. I wanted to do my best at it. I did feel like the city was so. Um, I, not being from Boston, but I, I do feel like the city just it created a bond between us, and um, it was important for me to be there. I'm, I'm curious about that bond. I mean, because just, just watching you talk about it, I can tell how meaningful it, it is to you. Um, frequently, when people experience a trauma in a particular geographic locale that may or may not be their home, um, they you, sort of their natural instinct would be, I'm never going back there again. I, I'm terrified of that place. I need to avoid it. It's a pretty common post-traumatic mm -hmm. reaction. Mm -hmm. And yet it sounds like you almost had the opposite of this feeling of being drawn back and, and needing to um, make peace or, or finish or, or resolve. Um, have you spent some time thinking about that? Do you know what that was about? I, I, I think I do. I mean, I think it's part of the, the making meaning. Mm -hmm. um, I think my connections were there. The people that I felt understood the loneliness mm -hmm. of survival were there. Um, so 
I could go there and talk to, you know, it was a group, mm -hmm. who's around? I'm mm -hmm. coming to town and we could have dinner and, you know, sit around and talk about or serve on whatever committee. And it just felt very acknowledging, mm -hmm. I think is probably a part of it. There was a validation there about your experience. Part of being an outsider is, you know, you're not there to do all the, I mean, I didn't go to any Red Sox games or, okay. you know, I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't focused. have. Just focused. You weren't like yeah, a tourist I, in Boston. No, anything. I didn't have access to that and I didn't, you know, okay. that wasn't a part of it. But I, I think it was the connections with the people and. Okay. Uh, you're listening to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, and we're here with Boston Marathon survivor Amy O'Neill talking resilience and um, how she went from being uh, exposed to a, a bombing one year, 365 days later, running and completing the Boston Marathon uh, and, and gaining some mastery over that experience and, and sort of helping her uh, move forward. Um, what, what role, Amy, do you think your experiences in Boston play in your life today? I think that's had a massive impact. Um, I was in mental health before this, I f as a professional, as a professional um, for 20 something years, uh, I've been very inspired again by people and what we're capacity and what we're capable of and, and how when we have the opportunity to connect, to make meaning, to work through things, to, to have our dignity or justice restored, all these things that people can go through what they're going through and there is another side. So that has been my motivation. I do feel very fortunate that I found an unbelievable psychologist professional to work with mm -hmm. um, on that part of it. I feel like I have an opportunity to help give some of that back, train, you know, or work with people in that mm -hmm. regard because I feel like I have a really intimate understanding of that mm -hmm. cool. experience. You You've used the term making meaning uh, a couple times uh, in our conversation so far. And I'm wondering if you could expound on that a little bit and talk about, from your perspective, what, what that means. I think survivors um, or victims, whichever people prefer, uh, feel a need to, this isn't, a describable experience. It's hard to articulate why this happens. I think, you know, think about a cancer diagnosis. It's an illness, a, even a natural disaster to some degree. We kind of, we know that they happen. This is a hate, it's a, it's so hard to construct a narrative about why this would happen. It's intentional. Yeah, just an evil. intentional yeah. evil. And I, I think even when you think about, you know, our case particularly, like to be living free and getting education and being on a college campus and having friends, to me, it just speaks to the degree of the ideology and radicalization that, that happens, that somebody could choose that. I know mm -hmm. that's not your question, sorry. No, that's okay. But, um, um, but making meaning became about, I think, just under having a, a narrative for what you went through, why you went through it, how it impacted you, how it changed you, mm -hmm. and what that means for me now. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's sort of the end result of the, the transformative process, mm -hmm. right? If life is different, in what way? How mm -hmm. do I? And I, mm -hmm. you know, to some degree, it's probably 
with my service now that I feel okay. is important and how I can help other survivors understand their journey. Cool. I, the, the process of transformation you describe, I mean, I think a lot of folks who've experienced, whether it's mass violence or some other kind of trauma exposure, uh, oftentimes they do view themselves as transformed, but so often that transformation sort of takes on a negative connotation, right? I am, I have been damaged by this. I have been, um, my life has turned for the worse because I, I went through this experience. And it, f hearing to you talk about it, I don't get that sort of vibe at all from you. Is did those thoughts ever occur to you? And if so, how did you how did you transform that? How did you channel that into a more positive? I think that that happens at some point along the process. Mm -hmm. You right, you question. It's not just what you're dealing with, but how you're dealing with it that contributes to the overall feeling that somebody has about themselves. I also think that people don't want to have to be different. You don't want to I don't want to go to the Eagles parade and feel like I want to go more than anything and then not want to go. And then my son's going, can he go if I'm not there? Do I, I know a police officer in Philadelphia, take her number. It's just, it's, it's a, it's not a way to live in that middle ground. Gotcha. So I think part of it is, you know, coming through the middle ground to, to get to this other space where you can, I call it a partnership. Mm -hmm. I think it's a constant negotiation okay. with how you're different okay. and um, the way that you experience the world. And I think you're right, people get angry and stuck because they either don't have the language or experience of, of working through mm -hmm. or they're not in a place where they're, they're being told to bounce back, to mm -hmm. get over it, get back to business as usual. And I think sometimes having the permission that things have changed, that means you're gonna see the world a little mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. And, and um, hearing you talk about your own experiences, it sounds to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of seeing things through the mental health lens myself, but it sounds to me like you're very actively engaged in um, that partnership. You're, it, it's not something that's happening to you. It's something that you are uh, taking on. And I mean, I don't want to sound too much like a, a touchy-feely therapist, but you're, you're being your own agent. I mean, you're, you're not just sort of passively right. letting life wash you down the, the, the riverbed. I mean, the, my metaphors here are horrible, but I mean, you kind of get the right. idea. Right. No, I, no I, I, do, I, I agree. It is... It is something that I want to be, so much is out of your control, mm -hmm. right? This is something that I can be a part of. I want to be a part of it. I, I need to be a part of it mm -hmm. to be able to not feel, I'm going to say like a victim, but I don't mm -hmm. mean it, you know, in the way that people say don't be a victim. Right. I mean it in the way of like, I'm stuck in this place, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about just understanding it okay, this is happening. Right. So it's happening. It can happen to me and I can get frozen or it's happening. What can I do about it? Mm -hmm. So little, little things help, little strategies help. And you can okay. do whatever it is, that, you know, 
whether it's text your family before you get on the flight or mm -hmm. you know what you do it and right. then you just acknowledge it and then you let it that was a thing yeah. it was a thing yeah. it was just a thing <laughs> um so what's next life <laughs> In, <laughs> right. uh, um so i'm working with a lot of different um peer support groups and you know as a stakeholder here and learning as much as I can mm -hmm. and teaching and trying to just use everything I have in this community, mm -hmm. the mass violence and the recovery community mm -hmm. to, to help make the transitions easier for the next people. Right. I think one of the things I have the ability to give people is language, mm -hmm. you know, for these experiences. And if we call it this, and if your mindset's hopeful, and if you're thinking about the future, what could that look like mm -hmm. for you to get awesome. there? So awesome. that's well, my goal. I'm excellent. going to the International Congress in Nice, France. Awesome. Victims Congress. and Excellent. Well, that should be fun. I mean, yeah. A, that sounds like an inspiring group of people to hang out with, and B, Nice, France. I nice, France, yeah. What's that yeah. like? Well, I, I hear that there's going to be lots of um, 700 victims from around the world, wow. different terrorist attacks. So I think it'll be a pretty incredible experience I, to I agree. continue to compare notes on survivor journeys and have information to yeah. give to anybody who wants it. Excellent. Well, you're an inspiration to me. So I really wanted yeah. to thank you very much for uh, chatting with me today. Uh, this has been the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast. We've been talking with Amy O'Neill, who is, um, I think it, it sort of diminishes her to just call her a Boston Marathon survivor uh, because there's so much more going on with her. But Amy, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. And um, good luck and enjoy Nice. I want to report. Yeah, thank you very much. Sure. Appreciate your time. Um, this is Dan Smith, the Director of Technology and Resources for the NMVVRC. And we'll be back soon to talk with you uh, and a, another interesting guest. Thanks very much. Thank you.